Hey, I'm Gina. And I'm Tara. This podcast is a view into our lives as moms, social entrepreneurs, and best friends who hold nothing back. We talk about all the things our world has tried to keep silent. Things like our bodies. And all the stages and phases we go through. Entrepreneurship, parenting. And how it all intersects with life. Each podcast, we catch up with each other, and then we interview someone who pushes us to learn something new. On this episode of Born Into This, we're talking to Carmen Lane, the founder of Atonzik. We go deep into the ideas of equity, the notion of care, and the real world reunion. So we just talked to Carmen. We did. We talked to Carmen, who we've worked with in several capacities over the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, we met them because they took a DTI doula training. And um, it was a really unique group in the sense that they had several of us training them. It was one of those times where uh, I was in town in New York City uh, to do some business meetings and networking mm-hmm. um, and mentorship with other trainers. And so... Um, Becky was the lead trainer at the time and she got called to a birth and then Simone was doing a training and she got called to a birth. And then we all kind of were privileged to like be at the training at different times and get to meet a really special group that stood out for a long time. Honestly, they really bonded and connected. Mm -hmm. Carmen was a part of that group. And also I bet a part of why that group was so special and uh, connected absolutely um, because they're definitely that kind of person right their presence Mm -hmm. um, shifts the room's presence and can lead people into conversations that maybe weren't expected absolutely I remember you called me from a coffee shop in the middle in between like sessions at the training and you were like there's someone in this training that is amazing and captivating and you were just kind of telling me about each participant, but they came up first. Yeah. And then I remember um, maybe six months later, eight months later, I was like, I'm going to go check out Carmen's website, which is Atonzik is their mm-hmm. um, organization. They started um, that houses arts and intergenerational collaborations and uh, organizational leadership and equity trainings and like, so much. Um, and when I called them, I'll never forget. They said, I was wondering when you were going to call me. (laughs) That's my best Carmen voice. (laughs) That was good. That was really good. I was just, I was just telling, uh, Matt the other day, how Carmen says no to something and, um, telling, I was actually telling him about the story that, you know, we talk about in the podcast that everyone's going to hear soon and just how they say no and it's so intentional. It is so clear. It has such a purpose. It's a, it's a full sentence. <laughs> it's a full sentence. No. And it's just like, you don't forget that. You're like, okay. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then I guess over the last several years since that first uh, phone call, we've worked with them as a leadership coach mm-hmm. and someone who runs our uh, deep dives into like retreats with our team and uh, in many ways has helped us structure DTI 
in ways we probably wouldn't have gotten to on our own. And so we're forever grateful Mm -hmm. to them. And I, I feel lucky to also call them a friend at this point. Yeah, absolutely. They really do um, teach you how to look at life through various layers. And I think it's been so helpful over the years as we look at DTI through this, the lens of like, you know, the ecosystem of DTI and how many layers there are, or it's like the team, the organizational level, the interpersonal levels, and all the things that go into building a thoughtful organization. And they've really been there to guide us through that, um, in a way that I never, yeah, I never would have like, you know, predicted that we would have this kind of relationship with somebody over the years. And, um, Mm -hmm. it feels so special at this point and I feel very privileged and lucky to have gone through this path with them. One of the things that Carmen brings up that's really fun in this interview is, um, we often joke about our age because I'm a little bit older than you (laughs) and Carmen and I are closer (laughs) to the age. Right. So we have a lot of the same like pop culture, Mm -hmm. um, experiences and like a lot of the same music and, you know, we'll joke that we're like the oldest people in the room (laughs) (laughs) and there was just a real world reunion, which, you know, was the first like reality show that happened on MTV in the early nineties. And I was a full fledged active teenager, Mm. right. Wearing my grunge clothes. And I myself was going into New York city alone, you know, without my parents and partying and, man, having fun. And, uh, I remember all the things that happened during those years. I remember sitting and watching it. I remember the music and I remember like politically what was going Mm -hmm. on and how, you know, the real world, I just now sat down this weekend to, to rewatch this reunion piece that they did because Carmen brought it up. And first of all, I thought I saw the reunion piece because I watched right. this <laughs> show with Andy Cohen that like basically talked about the reunion piece, but somehow I missed that there was actually a whole freaking series. So I went back and watched it. And it really is quite shocking how nothing's really changed. Becky's still, you know, a racist and hasn't, mm does not understand her privilege or anything that Kevin is trying to lovingly get through to her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not to like totally be a spoiler for anyone who hasn't watched it, but she just leaves, which I think is something you would expect from Becky. Um, And, you know, the group still has to have these intense discussions. And when you think about, Uh, what happened, you know, with George Floyd, as Mm -hmm. well as um, Rodney King. It's like the same fucking discussion. And I think um, this series really puts that in our face. And so when you hear Carmen uh, in this podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, we 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 reminisce and we also are sad that like this is still the place we're in. Yeah. Um, And it's I think, you know, I don't want to spoil anything about the interview, but it's, you know, it's an interesting perspective of, um, what it means to cycle back around and what, what is that? Mm -hmm. What is life trying to tell us when that happens? Um, when we notice that we're in the same cycle and how are we going to act on that? Um, and it is something I absolutely love about Carmen in the sense of they bring element of pop culture into our work all the time. And they're a huge TV and movie buff, huge. And so 
we've been through many trainings and um, seasons and sessions with them. We're like, they're calling upon culture and the godfather the godfather <laughs> training i am still i'm i'm here for that carmen i know you're listening to this and i'm here for that <laughs> when it is up and running but seriously that um it's always interesting i go i go back and watch the movies that carmen brings up through a different lens and it's mind blowing so while there's deep, serious, intentional work, there is playfulness and there is there are lessons and the things that we are, are absorbing every day that we don't think about that are just like categorized as fun and entertainment when there is deep, deep lessons to be had there. M. Carmen Lane is a two-spirit African-American and Haudenosaunee Mohawk Tuscarora artist, writer, and facilitator living in Cleveland, Ohio. Lane's work ranges from experiential educator to diversity practitioner to organizational systems consultant to experimental artist. All of it integrates ancestry, legacy, and spirituality. Lane is founder and director of Atonzik Center for Healing and Creative Leadership, an urban retreat, residency, and exhibition space, a social practice experiment in holistic health, equity leadership, and indigenous arts and culture in the historic Buckeye Shaker neighborhood. In 2016, they became a birth and postpartum, as well as an end-of-life doula through Doula Trainings International. Do you want to start, Carmen, by telling us about Atonzik? Um, it's an umbrella that's doing so much. I wonder if you could kind of lay the land so we can understand what's going on there. Well, well, um, Atonzik Center for Healing and Creative Leadership is an urban retreat residency and exhibition space in a part of Cleveland, Ohio, um, that's called the Buckeye Shaker neighborhood. So, um, historically, um, the Buckeye Shaker neighborhood was the second largest population of Hungarians to Hungary at one point. And then it transitioned into a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Um, and given the history of uh, gentrification, of redlining, of displacement, um, the population decreasing and move, people moving out of Cleveland, um, the property that we put this project in um, was owned by what's called a land bank, and uh, it was going to be demoed. And so through a grant process, I was able to um, get the property renovated and site the work here so that there would be kind of an ecosystem of several threads of, of work around change. So. Uh, equity leadership, arts and culture, um, and then what I call healing. So that includes the birth work, end of life work, um, other kinds of traditional healings that healing modalities that people could get access to in a more integrative and holistic way, right? So our practices are embodied practices, and therefore we get to experiment you know, at all levels of our human system, individually and collectively, for our own learning. There's an artist in residence at another gallery in town who had watched a panel that I was on and um, that I facilitated, and she wanted to meet me and learn about a tonsic. So I had a visit with her 
Sunday um, and gave her a tour of the space. And uh, she gifted the project with one of her prints. And, um, you know, we did have this one moment of connection where we both revealed that crankiness was like a material for use in starting our projects, you know, seeing what's missing in an environment and instead of being upset about it, doing something about it, you know, from the place where we are. I was just talking about this with my nine-year-old <laughs> this weekend, <laughs> how to use the emotion of grumpiness and anger as a way of learning something about yourself and learning something about the dynamics that you're in around you. Uh, because I think it gets a bad reputation. Like you're not allowed to be angry. Don't be angry. Everyone calm down. And it's more like, no, let's work with this because I think you're pissed off for a reason and you're learning something about your body and your mind. Yeah. The, uh, the, the poet Christos, she talks about the, in a poem, the purifying spirit of anger, you know? Um, and I think we're, you know, part of why I think anger and women and queer and trans and non-binary people are, and people of color are encouraged, right? Like it's, you know, because that's a generative force. Um, so we're supposed to, you know, know our place and have, presentable presence and, you know, all of these things that we eventually have to learn how to crack through in order to just be ourselves, you know, which informs a stronger it's practice. true. I think um, I've witnessed that a lot in the postpartum time for new parents where this like inner rage mm -hmm, shows itself. Mm -hmm. And I like that, that phrase, purifying spirit of anger. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah, I love it. I remember the first time I read that poem, it blew my mind. I was like, wow, you can say all of that in, mm -hmm. in a poem. It's got impact for sure. You know, so the project kind of came out of, you know, several of my own interests that I really felt disparate at one point and really wanted to bring together as a whole for myself. Um, and so I live here. Um, I live on the second floor, and the uh, first floor is a communal space for the residencies um, and any kind of workshop or salon that will host when we can gather again post-COVID. And we cited a uh, in, in contemporary art gallery um, in the two-car garage on the property. Mm -hmm. So um, Cleveland doesn't have a large history of artist-run spaces like this. However, you know, particularly in Chicago, um, California, and in Europe, you know, alternative spaces where people can still show their work, particularly kind of garage-based projects, um, have a history to them. Um, but primarily, um, I would say, for a white contemporary art. Um, audience. So for me, um, as an artist of color, kind of joining that tradition, I still have to put up with people going, it's in a garage, you know? <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, it's a, it's an art gallery, you know? Um, whereas some, you know, white girl named Jennifer in um, a cool neighborhood in Chicago, that's the coolest thing that Jennifer has done and is 
given full credit as a curator, mm. you know. Um, so for me, having artists being able to live here, work here, and exhibit work here, um, and for the people in the community to get to know that artist and learn about the full kind of processes of their practice is an interesting intervention around sharing what is possible. Um, so for example, we have a garden in the front of the house where all of the plants are indigenous to Northeast Ohio mm-hmm. and or the Great Lakes region. Um, and just having nature in the yard that's not um, controlled mm-hmm. has invited you know young people to the site asking questions about the plants, talking to people, um, wanting to touch them, smell them, engage with them. Um, So this garden is building, as it grows, it's building community through how it's communicating its, its life. And again, you know, witnessing the cycle of, you know, birth and life, death and rebirth through this garden planting over time. So it's also a way to make meaning Mm -hmm. um, individually, collectively, you know, for myself and for anybody who's on the property. Um, You know, part of um, Atonsic for me is that it's, it's a place reclamation project in that we acknowledge that Cleveland is in the Western territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, that um, historically this part of the territories were hunting grounds, uh, trails for travel and trade. So we didn't live here. And so I'm reimagining what the purpose of this place can be, um, particularly for indigenous contemporary artists. And so, um, you know, for example, you know, having Jennifer uh, Kreisberg with us as the first resident We've been having very kind of interesting conversations while she's here around the fact that she's from Connecticut Mm. um, and that Connecticut used to own Northeast Ohio. Mm. Um, So Cleveland used to be known as the Connecticut Western Reserve. Wow. Um, And so the Western Reserve is still in a lot of titles of things in the environment, but the Connecticut part um, is is absent. So it's, we have Case Western Reserve University, we have Western Reserve Academy, Western Reserve Historical Society. Um, and so we, you know, as a part of, you know, um, some alliances that were formed across various indigenous nations, you know, there were a couple of treaties that were violated and, and uh, which is how this part of the world was acquired by the 13 colonies, you know. <laughs> I had no idea. So, yeah. Yeah. So when Cleveland was was taken, right, when this area was taken, there was 94% woodland. Wow. So for it to be so absent of life mm-hmm. and full of new peoples, you know, um, you think about, you know, what would be the potential to design a space right. around what what already exists rather than erase and, yeah. and rebuild. And so that's been a part of this project, too, is learning about who has lived here, mm-hmm. 
before our project, you know, because we don't want, you know, some creative project to erase all the people and lives and histories that have occupied this space. So, Carmen, what have you learned when you've been digging into that? Well, I've learned that only two two Hungarian families and two African-American families have owned this space before the Cuyahoga Land Bank owned it and before we owned it. Mm-hmm. The deed has only changed five times. Mm-hmm. There was a Hungarian family that lived here for several generations, and the one of the male descendants married an Hungarian woman, but he passed away. And from the record, um, it then went on to, when she remarried for the second time, somehow the property became her second husband's, mm. who was a Polish man, <laughs> with just its own complexity of yeah. how that occurred. And then two African-American families moved in, and I think the, the second family ended up renting the space because it's a duplex. And then there was a loss where it then went to the Cuyahoga Land Bank for about five or six years. And then now it Atonsic owns it. So um, that's a, a an 105-year history of wow. this house. It was built in 1915. Was there anything in that story that was really surprising to you or was it what you anticipated? Well, I feel like it's what I anticipated. It's really kind of a microcosm Mm -hmm. of the urban environment, you know. So for me, um, it becomes then a responsibility to really think about how we live in a place, how we occupy space. Yeah. Is it so when you're welcoming people into the residency and they're staying there, is this conversation had or this knowledge put forward before they kind of before they're invited into the space or sign on to be there? Some of some of it is yeah, on the website mm-hmm. and the welcome packet. And then the other pieces, we have a print um, on the wall of what the house looked like before it was renovated. Mm-hmm. And so it was important to celebrate the the transformation of the space, but also to remember um, what it looked like, you yeah. know. Um, so that's the first thing people see when they walk through the doors is this what what the space used to look like. Yeah. You know? and, and so that typically sparks conversation, yeah. you know, which is bit cool. Yeah. You know? I am curious about the conversation element built into yeah. this time. Um, at Atonzik, where Tara and I have been having amazing, deep conversations with you for years. And I'm wondering, how is that built into the time for the artist to be there? And for you, too, as like, you know, a professional, a leadership professional, an artist, and as Carmen, and how does that like worked into that relationship? Like the capacity or or capacity and also just like, what you're hoping to have it a part of the ecosystem of mm. Atonsic. Yeah, for me, you know, I want it to be kind of an organic experience where there's just things for people to kind of saturate themselves in and catalyze curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a very pragmatic sense, if the artists and residents, while they're here, wants a studio visit, wants a coaching session, 
wants some kind of body work, um, you know, they can schedule that in during their time here. Okay. Um, and then there's just the fact that there's really uh, two very nice porches um, <laughs> that are very inviting um, in the space. And it just naturally brings important conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the neighbors who walk past, they see you, they say, hello, how are you? Um, and when I first moved here, I forgot that there are some neighborhoods where people actually want an answer when they say, how are you? <laughs> um, when they say hello, um, they really do want to connect with you. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really nice to reconnect, um, to live in a neighborhood that people still want to live that way. Yeah. Um, and I haven't lived like that in a long time. I've lived in neighborhoods where people just said, hey. It's so. Hi. Head nod. Yeah. I just recently um, fenced in my front yard. So we've been spending so much more time out in the front yard with the dog mm -hmm. and the kids. And I feel like I have, I'm like developing this whole new relationship to my neighbors and yes. just like the people who walk by. And we were on the phone last week and you were telling me a lot about the dog across the street. And I feel like you're like establishing mm -hmm. a relationship with this puppy across the street. Yeah, there was this cat this morning um, <laughs> that was trying to come in and I had to say, no, I was on the porch. And I said, no, no, I'm not coming up here. How does it feel that Atonzik is opening its doors during this pandemic? Because we've all been kind of cheering on and watching the growth that's happened with mm. the idea of Atonzik, Atonzik coming together and coming to fruition. And then here we are, you're literally opening the doors during a pandemic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, we've had over 20 programs, you know, when we didn't have a physical space in the last four years. And mainly those programs were an intervention for people to learn about our values, to learn about kind of our goals and how we want to be in relationship with our community, you know? Um, so it's a form of, you know, of community building, but also a communication um, with the environment about who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we always wanted the project to be intimate and small, you know? Um, we always wanted the project to be anticipating um, the needs um, in our world, you know? And so when the project first started, the word healing wasn't that hot in the, in the, in the zeitgeist, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the notion of care and hospitality wasn't a part of it. Um, people thought we were crazy to want a small space, you know? Um, and yet, you know, given our current, reality, you know, a tonsic was made for these conditions. Um, mm -hmm. We did our first, you know, virtual programming in 2017, you know. Um, so this, none of this was new to us. Um, but, you know, even still, um, there was still some shock that we were growing so robustly during the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. It was moving to have a, a virtual grant opening with 60 people, you know, from all over the world um, be with us to, to learn about us, to celebrate us. Um, 
you know, most people assume that, you know, we knew all the people at the the virtual. I assumed we, that, yeah. You know, and we only knew out, you know, about uh, a half or le- some a little less than half mm. were the people that I knew, you know. Um, so it's really been um, a testament in clarity of purpose because I've said no to a lot of things mm-hmm. in the life of this project. Um, and saying no has opened up so many clearer and more meaningful relationships and opportunities for the project. Um, and I'm very grateful for it. You know, and I still have concern, you know, that this project is even needed right now, you know, like Mm. that we have the capacity to support um, and understand what's happening in this ecosystem. And at the same time, it's it's very, you know, it's disconcerting. Right. Because there's another, you know, man from my community as an African-American who was murdered recently. um, And I've made a commitment not to watch these videos Mm -hmm. yeah um because i don't want to de-skill myself or diminish my capacity to act you know because of my own kind of grieving um or my own to to pull the scab away from my own trauma as a person of color in america um but also um i think when these kinds of murders happen Um, There's something about then showing it um, that also reinforces and sends a message um, to the Black community, um, consciously or unconsciously, right, to know our place, to be afraid, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I refuse to receive that message. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, you know, back to age, we were talking about age at one point and I said, you know, (laughs) and I hate using phrase young people, but I'm going to use it. (laughs) When we get to our age, we can use it. Right. Isn't there some permission? Maybe there's some permission. Maybe. I don't know. But, um, (laughs) you know, people are saying I hear young people saying things like, um, well, we know how bad racism is now because it's being recorded. You know, We we can see it now. Therefore, there's some, you know, that's why things are changing. But, um, you know, uh, white supremacists used to create postcards of lynching victims and, and send them public. to each other. And, mm-hmm. it, and it was and these lynchings were public. Right. You know, there were invitations for people to view, to see, you know, they left our bodies hanging from trees on purpose so that we could see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't experience this moment is any different in terms of our behaviors, although the tech has changed. The behaviors are the same. Medium. You know, yeah. you know my grandmother had a friend and she told me, she said she had this memory of being in a car with her parents. So this is like a 95 year old woman telling me this story. Um, and she remembered her parents, they were driving down a road at night and her parents told her to close her eyes, to not look out the window and she turned and looked out the window um, and saw, you know, a black man's body hanging from a tree. And while her parents, right, wanted to intervene and interrupt, right, for her mental health, 
for her overall well-being, to send her a message of encouragement for her life and growth, not to look. Mm-hmm. But for her, right, in retrospect over time, it was important for her to look and to see and understand. Um, I was 10 years old the first time I saw an image of a Black person lynched. So I'm clear I don't need to see it again because I can see it now. Just the reference, the reference of the memory. When I hear Emmett Till's name, I wasn't even alive when he was murdered, but I see it. I see his face in the casket. Not because the police showed us the postcard, but because the mother, right, back to reproductive justice, the mother the mother decided to show the world her son's body, which is a very different intervention and significantly more powerful and a, quite a bit of discernment, right, for a mother to decide that. Yeah. I like how you use the word intervention. Yeah, it was an intervention. You know, she could have said no. She could have had a closed casket. Mm-hmm. She could have cremated him you know, heard a story about this where a friend of mine had done some research for a project and um, Mamie Till had, um, you know, she talked to her mother. I think she talked to her grandmother about it. Like, what should I do? But But she also had several dreams of communication that informed her decision making, you know, and, and the dreams plus the engagement with the elders catalyzed her to say yes to it. And so when I think about the ancestors coming to Mamie to tell her to do this, what's so extraordinary about the intervention is potentially her son was the ancestor, right? Um, so he said he wanted the world to see his body and asked his mother to leave the casket open. And when I think about it that way, I, in a deeper way, understand why he was murdered, right? Because the mythology is that he was a a teenage boy from Chicago going down south and flirting with a white lady, whistling. And so he was murdered because he was foolish. But um, the, the story that the family tells when the, um, when the white folks burst into their home to take Emmett out, the first thing the man says is, where is the nigger who did the talking? And I said, oh, so Emmett probably didn't whistle. He probably said something pointed that was in resistance to oppression and they murdered him. You know, So that feels more in alignment with what I understand racism to be. You know, that we are not to stand in our purpose as human beings and demand being treated as such. It's interesting when you were talking about um, kind of choosing what to take in, what not to take in, and like thinking about how what would give you more skills versus de-skill you and how that plays into this idea of care. Um, And it's all connected 
I want to hear, I just want to hear more. I want to hear more about this idea of care and what, and you know, how it plays a role in skills and de-skills. Well, I think part of it, right, is um, I need to know myself in order to know how I can be useful to others and to to the world, um, which means I also need to investigate the things that need to be worked on, you know, <laughs> not just the wonderful things about myself, um, but also and be OK, right, that not from a, a, a standpoint of scarcity, that it's OK to take the time to develop yourself. It's OK to pause. It's OK to say no. It's okay that the client doesn't want you. They want somebody else. Like there's all of these relational things um, that shift once you put care as a framework for your decision making. Mm -hmm. Um, How I care for myself, you know, is, you know, there's an Audre Lorde quote, self-care isn't is as. I can't remember, but it's as an act of resistance, you know, it Mm. isn't just that I'm caring for myself, you know, Um, because the system tells you not to take care of yourself. The system wants you to be overproductive. Um, But paradoxically, what I find is that I'm more productive, right, and more effective when I take more time to take care of myself and my body and and take more leisure time for myself. You know, and leisure could be quiet time or time in nature that when I choose to take that kind of time and not make it special, but make it essential to my work week, to um, the way I just want to live as a human being, um, I find myself having a different kind of capacity to care for others Um, as a coach, as a doula, as an artist, you know, that there is a lot more resource to access, you know, than when I'm depleted or trying to fit into some, you know, container or prescription of what somebody else's beliefs are. Yeah, this is, I've, I've been working out of my bed this week and it's very... I've never done it before. How is that for you? I have two questions. How is that for you physically in your body and also mentally? Like that would, it makes me feel tired when I work from my bed. It feels more psychological than physical. Like like I I'm needing um to be surrounded by comfort in order to get the task done. You know. I I, I don't think it'll and it feels temporary even in choosing to do it. It doesn't feel like a shift in how I'm working, but just um, uh, this is what I need to do for this moment. Yeah, I like that. That's like I don't often for myself. I'm usually working from my bed if like especially during this pandemic of like there is no other space in my house for me to post up with a computer. <laughs> so I'm in my bed working. So I never think of it as this way of like, I need to be surrounded by comfort and be like planted, you know, in the roots in my room. It's more like this is the only room available and I'm going to work from my bed today. (laughs) And so. And then I have an artist in residence here right now. They've been here since April 1st. So I think the other thing is I've been doing a lot of taking care of me and 
hosting someone else and figuring out the balance of when I need to be present, when um, I need to leave them alone, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. It's so interesting. This, you know, the, the time during the pandemic has really mirrored a postpartum experience, yes. like after baby, where the, everything just kind of tucks in, gets quiet and still and small, like the actual geographical <laughs> map is much smaller. Um, and that's really happened during the pandemic. And I think it has really, it's this opportunity that's presented itself to the world of slowing down and tucking in. However, I do feel like social media has like popped in this even bigger way and has gotten faster and more energetic because that's where humans are looking for connection and it's gotten even more busy over there. And oh, yeah. here we are. TikToks, right? <laughs> All the dancing. It's like, it, you know, just entertainment in the palm of our hand and connection in the palm of our hand. I get that. I really, and advocacy and news and like all of the things. Power right? to make change, right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's really sparked this new way of connection mm -hmm. and um, how we navigate and flow through the world yes. day to day. And it's really complicated to hold space for both of those things and to discern the difference between the two and just like when to tuck in and slow down to see the opportunities there and to like go into that idea of care and then when to engage with the other, the energetic stimulating side. Yes. It's all happening from like our houses right now. <laughs> I know. I, I love it actually. It's been, cause it, it's been pushing me to really be as clear as possible about my boundaries. Mm. Um, you know, so what are some of your, like, what, what are some of not, not tricks or tips, but like, what are the practices? <laughs> what are the practices that you do? Um, well, I think medit, you know, I have a meditation practice and that's been significant for me during the pandemic. And I don't mean consistent and perfect, but, right. <laughs> you know, I love that you said that <laughs> I'm like, you know, let's keep, you know, let's keep it 100, as they say. Um, but really taking time in the morning for myself. I may not have as much time as, you know, yesterday morning as I did this morning, but really taking the morning to go out on the porch, to watch the sunrise, to smell the air, to listen to the birds you know, to slow, have a slow cup of coffee, you know, um, um, really thinking about like, where is my workspace from my living space from, um, you know, I have like a little staging area on my porch for like a COVID visit. So like based on the layout of like the rug and the chairs, it automatically puts people six feet apart. <laughs> so, Perfect. I, so I don't have to have that conversation with you about what six feet is. It's like, it is, it is this, you know, you sit here, I sit I here. Sit here. <laughs> um, I think what I eat, what I choose to eat during this time has been so important around because, you know, it's a, it's a pandemic. There's anxiety, there's self-management um, but also not judging if I eat a whole bag of popcorn, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, dang, that skinny pop went like 
like that. It's <laughs> um, so good. It's, you know, that, that salt and pepper one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other thing is being serious about my protocols, not just for myself, but wanting to care and be hospitable to others. You know, like all of that has created some kind of stasis for me that's been generative. The only time that I really lost it (laughs) during this time was after George Floyd was murdered. Um, So it was like we had been sheltering in place. He was murdered. Breonna Taylor, you know, I, you know, and at the time I lived in a, you know, a two bedroom apartment and a very small porch. And so I just, you know, I had to do something. And so I wrote like a letter to the editor of The Plain Dealer. I published an essay and I made this video called um, Some Notes on Racism During a Global Pandemic. But that was like I had to make something and put it out in the world to create a boundary for myself, to take care of my well-being and to offer something to others. Like all of that needed to happen to get me back to a place of groundedness, you know, not resolution, but groundedness. And, you know, my letter to the editor, I got like a a handwritten note from the state senator, Sherrod Brown. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Um, but, you know, and the only thing that was really significant about that is um, my grandmother would have loved me getting that letter. And so I I thought it was important to um, kind of celebrate it with her in that way. Um, the other thing is, you know, I find myself drinking more water, taking more walks, but also as time passes, you know, this year that we spent feels so long ago that I feel like I need to take time to remember all of these things that I've done to kind of take care of myself and to still make so that I can carry those learnings with me into whatever this phase is, you know? Um, I really want to slow down and really identify all the things that worked well during that time. But then a part of me also just wants to go to a cabin and by the lake and chill out for like a month away from all of this busyness that wants to return And I think it's premature, you know, I'm very worried about, you know, like, look at, you know, I'm looking at the Johnson and Johnson. Oh, yeah. Pause and. It is a very, it's a very fast moving train right now. All of it, this like this seeking change and. I I totally agree with you. This like reflection period has to be thought, thought out. And again, I'm going to go back to that postpartum time where I'm like sitting, you know, I used to sit with clients and talk about like, okay, you're going to like re-enter your workspace or you're going to go like take walks in the park now, whatever that may be. But it's like that re-emerging into the outside world. And it's like, having that moment to reflect and think back and what do you want to preserve and what do you want to bring with you and how are you feeling? I I really do want to carry some of that on. Um, Like my kids are going to go back to school next week. And I'm like, I 
don't want to get in the car. But every I, morning. Every morning. The packing of the lunches. However, my oldest is in great need of socials, like being around her friends right now. It is something that she greatly needs for her mindset. And so, you know, it's like. I understand the change that needs to be made, and I feel like we're doing it in a safe, thought-out way. But I also am like, ooh, I'm noticing that like my nervous system is not equipped to re-enter into that world. No, no. I mean, even with the the vaccine, um, the 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 two shot one, right? Right. You know, I noticed people were trying to do their normal tasks after getting these vaccinations, and I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to allow my body to do whatever work it needs to do to, to work with this vaccine, to create these antibodies. Now, honestly, you know, when I got my second shot, I really couldn't do much um, yeah. afterwards because I got the the brain fog or the loopiness mm-hmm. that... that some people are getting. So I just needed to not be in conversation with anyone, you know, because it was not making any sense. Um, But it also felt like, how can I put this? The whole planet is having a shared experience, right? Yes. Yeah. It's like a newborn circle or a new parent circle. Yes. (laughs) Giant, giant circle. And that really is an invitation to me um, to listen more, to slow down, to um, Mm -hmm. kind of ask a fundamental question of why are we needing to have a shared experience right now? And I'm okay with the fact that not everyone is going to take advantage of this moment. I'm not okay with potentially... um, your lack of seriousness causing irreparable harm to another person. Um, I just recently heard a story, you know, a person who went to visit, you know, elderly relatives because they wanted to. um, And, you know, there was a loss there, Mm. you know. And, um, you know, I could make a comment about, you know, particularly whiteness and white supremacy. and mm-hmm. But I don't really want to go there so much as I want to go back to, like, not the ways that we commodify care, but what does it really mean to live together? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the fundamental question yeah. that this moment is inviting us into. I... Right there with you. And I want to know, like, and Carmen, you know this because you've been in this birth world for Mm -hmm. a birth, the birth world Mm -hmm. before, but this, like the word Mm self-care and I see you intentionally saying care Mm -hmm. and not self-care. Is that, was that like a thought out thing? Well, um, well, I think self-care gives me the willies right now. Same. It's like, it's become this thing that I'm like, <laughs> you know, because I'm not talking about bath bombs right now. Right. Yeah. You know, even though I have some eucalyptus in my shower right now. Right. Nothing wrong with a bath bomb, but that's yeah, not no, yeah. all. That's not the answer to everything. <laughs> but I think care 
is also a worldview. It's not just a, mm-hmm, the yeah. physical acts of caretaking. You know, it's a way of how we make meaning. You know, I think about, um, you know, some of the conversations that happen in kind of doula Facebook groups or listservs, things like that, you know, and people often want to kind of credential themselves with whatever medical knowledge is that they have, Mm -hmm. even though that's not our role or purpose as doulas. Um, And I always ask this question, like, what is the stance that is required for me in relationship to my client so that they can do the work and that their child can do the work that's required for them to enter. You know, so if I, if I bump that up to kind of, you know, you know, working a project that's community-based or, you know, what's happening on the planet, what is the stance, you know, that humanity needs to have at this moment in time? you know, in order to move through this moment, in order to care for each other, not just in our, you know, hashtags and wokeness, but how we navigate our environments for a better world. Mm -hmm. Not the world you want, not the justice you seek, but what's required at the largest systems level, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, Part of the discovery may be you're part of the problem in some way, which is hard. But, you know, there's time to reflect, you know, and think about how you want to shift. That's what we do with our clients. That's what we do in our family systems. That's what we do in our personal relationships. That's what we do when we hit an edge of change in the work that we're doing, no matter what. We have to fundamentally figure out what the shift is once we hit that edge of transformation. And um, paradoxically, during the pandemic, as things slow down, there's more edges to bump into and investigate. And you either open to it or you resist it. Um, But it is humbling, you know, both in the pragmatic sense um, and in the internal discoveries that we have. Um, at least for myself, at least for myself. No, I, I, I'm right there with you. And I remember a year ago when we started our, um, our work together with you, Carmen, to transition, mm-hmm. um, out of our leadership role at DTI, which, you know, we've worked with you for, whoa, like six years. That's crazy. Seven year, like, it's crazy. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Something like yeah, that. We've worked. Crazy. We've worked with you for six years and all through leadership um, where you've like really like entered the space with us as our leadership coach and advisor through different capacities over time. But this past year has been to support us as we transition out of leadership at DTI. And you said that a year ago, you said you guys are at the edge of change. And I wrote that down in every single notebook I have and it's (laughs) everywhere. It's on post-its in my house. And I'm like, we were at the edge of change. And you also talk a lot about change within change within change. And that is like, as Tara and I are embarking on this change, you know, really about to close it out, really, to be on the other side of it. It's something that has like replayed in my head over and over again, like the change within change and how you're constantly sitting there at the edge. And it's 
I think it's one of the most helpful things any humans ever told me in the way that I stay curious. I keep my eyes open and I, it makes me feel ready. It makes me feel very ready to do mm. the work. I, I, I am often, I'm like, I'm so proud. Look at Gina. <laughs> <laughs> Look at her. <laughs> I'm like, woo, you're breaking it down. I don't, I don't really need to be no. here. You know, that's. <laughs> no. You make it really fun, Carmen. Uh, thank you. But, you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, um, when I, when I think about that time, you know, it was really a wonderful way to integrate all the things mm-hmm. that I was interested in, you know, with this work with DTI, because I got to, you know, it's it's all cycles of, of birth yeah. and and rebirth and um, and each each birth was never the same. It's true what they <laughs> say. Know? We keep talking about phases and stages and. Yes. They keep coming. And as we get to be the old, old people in the room, (laughs) there's different learnings and there's, there's different edges to bump up against. And I guess, you know, and when that stops, then, you know, you're not really here amongst the living. So I'm grateful. (laughs) Well, that was like the, um, the Willie Nelson song, Carmen, that I sent you the lyrics stages and phases, circles and cycles. It's that same thing. and I know, and it's like Willie Nelson's breaking it down like this. Oh yeah, <laughs> he is well, highly you know, regarded here in Austin. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody's a a songwriter. No, you know? um, and a good songwriter um, has experiences, has lived experiences that they've made some meaning about. And, you know, I was just talking about Bonnie Raitt as a songwriter mm. with someone, and I said, "Oh, she." She mess with you. She get she. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and as those stages and phases in life shift, you can listen to her songs again. And it's like, oh, oh, you're poking at something else right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was Bonnie Raitt and Bruce Springsteen were the cassettes that I my mom had in the car. That's like when I think about being a really? child in the car with my mom. That's who she listened to in Joni Mitchell. But like. Mm. Those three, I can I can picture the drawer below the seat in the van where all of them lived. That's yeah, funny. One of one of my tapes from that era was In Excess's Kick. Mm. I listened to that tape a lot. You know, it was something about those snare drums and that that, that yeah. kick. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I love that. You know, what is it? Don't suffocate on your own hate. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I love that line. Oh, oh, that's a good one. But I do think that there is something paradoxical about whatever this cycle is of the last 30 years that is a pattern of reflection right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may simply mean um, that as Gen Xers are hitting a certain age of leadership, yeah. That there's certain archetypes of time that are becoming figural for us and we're using it materially, you know. So it's something about a a Biden Clinton that's oh a, God, yes. a binary, you know. And mm-hmm. the Rodney King and George Floyd and Yes. Yeah, it is right um, there. It's 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 strange, you know, or even 
the ways in which social media and social justice are being played with right now. Mm -hmm. Like you might even track it back to the real world that first season rock the vote during that period of time. Um, you know, uh, Tabitha Soren, uh, Sorensen, Tabitha Soren. Right, yeah. She's a photographer now. Oh, wow, and, I didn't know um, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know either until after I had a conflict with her in an, art, um, in an artist talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, there, there is a pattern of something that's emerging right now and we really do need to think about if we want to play it out or if we want to distinguish ourselves in some way right now. Yeah, the intergenerational um, conversations right now, I think, are hard. I don't I don't know that that's really happening with folks online. Um, I think I so. our generation is being more quiet. Yes. But we're starting to bubble up, and I find that interesting. I'm like, why are Gen Xers bubbling right now? <laughs> we've just we've just been kind of, you know, um, percolating. Because um, even for example, in that real world, um, uh, the one guy had just he had a four year old baby, you know, and he had been with his partner for like ten years before they got married. So it's kind of like that's why he's fifty. With a four-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm like, "Ooh, that's a that's some two different kinds of energy." Taller, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yowzer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think there is, you know, as I think generationally, there's something that we need to be doing, and there's something that we need to be seeing mm-hmm. about ourselves at this moment. Um, that's significant, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, so I'm finding myself attracted to wanting to actually spend time with my age peers about mm-hmm. what we've experienced in the past and how we want to offer um, our experiences in some meaningful way. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I've been having that conversation with multiple people. And then, you know, MTV had it at a meta level um but you know how do we want to distinguish ourselves you know yeah what's the the long-term impact that we want to make because really now is the time if not now when want to move on to the spinner the spinner so what's the spinner so it's a game (laughs) it's like we literally spin a wheel And the questions are around um, reproductive health, entrepreneurship, friendship. Okay, go for it. We spun the wheel and we got your question. Okay. Okay. So the question for you that came up is where or who did you learn about sex or the reproductive system? And where or who do you wish you learned it from? Mm. So this is an interesting story. Um, My eldest aunt... um, taught high school. She was a home ec teacher. Um, But I think one year she was asked to teach uh, sex ed, or she at least was in conversation with that colleague. And so one day I came home and there was a book on my bed 
<laughs> um, and my mom told, you know, and I, and she wasn't, you know, I just kind of walked in and see this book. And then my mom kind of comes out of nowhere and says, you know, my aunt looked at, you know, my aunt gave me that book and she looked it over and she thought it was good for me to read. So I literally learned about sex from like a book that was being used to teach sex ed in school. <laughs> wow. So do you remember the book? No, but I remember it was the size of like a pocket, you know, the old timey pocket books. Mm. And then and then by the time I did learn sex ed in school, it was that Miracle of Life film. Yeah. Do you remember that? Film? Yes, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Because it was mind blowing to me that a camera mm -hmm. could actually track semen traveling yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through a, you know, a fucking fallopian tube looking for right. a popping <laughs> egg. That blew my mind that there was I a know. camera tracking that, you know? It's like the sperm had little GoPros on or something. I know. You're like, what is happening? You know? And it, it, it I, that movie changed. And then the other you know, part was I was happy I had read the book before the teacher had just slapped the film on because yeah. the, the, the teacher had given no, That's a there good was point. no context. No context. And you're just like, well, these things are swimming around. What's going on? <laughs> no. And then when I was in Catholic high school, we had mm. uh, a couple that was paid to do this. They were going around as kind of consultants they were doing workshops on um natural family planning oh wow was mm -hmm. abstinence a part of that or was it truly natural family planning like the rhythm method or because at catholic school I, like the story i make up is that they talk a lot about saying no no mm. it was the rhythm method we oh, had okay. to yeah. um take our basal temperature and fill out oh. this Okay. Um, calendar and pretend like we were, you know, as a married couple, right. <laughs> part of a married couple doing this. Oh, wow. And I remember that they made a joke about Norplant in the oh. uh, presentation. Really? You no. Know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Remember, isn't Norplant basically pre-Depo, Provera, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So they made a joke about it. And I like said, joking and I, about birth control in general. Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes. Wow. And it was mind blowing. But then, paradoxically, there was a a woman religious teacher who taught us about the Kinsey scale. Yeah. Um. You know that wasn't a part of the curriculum, but um, she did teach us that, you know, sexuality and sexual orientation hmm. were on a continuum. That's interesting. So. So for me, one of the things I like about this question is that, you know, these ways in which we get conflicting messages while people are efforting to give us a certain amount of like what we will believe, what we want to believe for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember like talking to a friend of mine during this, you know, presentation going this is i cannot believe this is <laughs> this is what's happening um but i think if i want it to be taught by someone about reproductive justice at that time in my life i think 
I'm just going to give her a shout out. Annie Sprinkle. Remember uh, Annie Sprinkle? No. Who is that? You don't remember? She's like this uh, feminist, femme, sex positive. His name know. sounds so familiar. Like she's doing these um, like performance art things with the speculum yeah. and you could see inside of her yes. vagina. Yeah. Oh, so you would want lessons from Annie Sprinkle. I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> it's provocative, but. Um, <laughs> That's OK. <laughs> but but I think when I did learn about her practice, I didn't necessarily, you know, 100 percent say yes. You know, but it did like burst something open for me in college that there's all this potentiality around what reproductive justice can be um, yeah. for ourselves. And that even in the midst of designing experiences that open things up for people, that there's so many conditions that we have to consider um, that still are forces for us not to to break free around these constraints and yeah. oppressive forces. So um, it's one of these areas in life where you always have to ask yourself, am I colluding with the system or am I doing something different? And off, and it's tricky, I, yeah. I believe. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, that and was, yeah, that book is just sitting on the bed. <laughs> sitting on the bed. My, my mom gave me a book in a red canvas bag. And I will never, like, my sister and I used to stare at it up in the closet being like, there's the bag. There's the book in the bag. Um, Carmen, can you tell everyone where to find you and point them in the directions you want them to be? Uh, you can find me at mcarmenlane.com, mclane.consulting. Um, and our project Atonsic is atnsc.org. But I prefer to be found on Instagram. You do? Is, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn as well, you mm -hmm. know, um, and Facebook. But, um, you know, Instagram um, feels like a more kind of holistic place to be right. visually. Yeah. Um, LinkedIn is pragmatic. So if you're coming at me on that platform, be clear about what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> that. That's helpful. Thank you so much, Carmen, for today and joining us. We're so happy you're to welcome. have you. Yes. So happy to have right. you a part of our journey through the last six yes. years. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Thank you for tuning into today's episode. As always, head to our website, bornintothis.co to learn more information about our nonprofit and to explore the items in our shop. Check out our book, Born Into This, a creative guide through reproductive health. And be sure to check out our tote bags made by Bagu with artwork featuring Kelly Colchin. We'll see you next time at Born Into This.